Hi, I'm Ken. I'm an alcoholic. They left. I got to take this off. I love the badge, but old habits die hard. And sometimes I still, if there's, feel something on the back of my neck or off to the side, you know, remember those days? Oh, what was that? um, So I just like to get comfortable up here. Um, One of my favorite stories from my home group was... uh, a new guy that was, they, they liked to get together and uh, play softball on Saturdays. And he got up to bat, and he was fairly pretty new and still shaking and everything. And a bunch of gnats came swirling around him, and he just froze and just couldn't move, just paralyzed until finally somebody yelled out, We see him too. And then he, oh, <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> It's so nice to be with people that understand us, isn't it? really is. Um, I'm just delighted to be here. I mean, who, who wouldn't take the red-eye flight? It, this has just been terrific. I want to thank uh, my baby Lexa for coming and being here uh, with me also and sharing this, this trip. Um, I didn't give birth to Lexa. She, I sponsor Lexa. I, I know that in different parts of the country they say different things, pigeons, babies, sponsees, but anyway, I just wanted to clear that up. Um, I sponsor Lexa. And um, we're just having ourselves a wonderful time, really. I just... I, uh, you know, I have, I've always had that Yankee fascination with the South, and which I'm sure if you're from the South is really irritating, but we can't help ourselves, so I'm sorry. But it's just, you know, Southern literature, and this is my first time in South Carolina. I haven't, I've been in Kentucky and Louisiana, and, but it's just I'm delighted to be here and with everybody so friendly and striking up conversations. And, and I was thinking maybe we don't seem that friendly, but because like someone will speak in the someone spoke to us in the elevator, for example, and, uh, you know, it's not that we're friendly, we're just in shock, I think, and it's kind of like, oh, oh, they're starting a conversation, and then you just want to burst into tears because it's just so nice. Um, It really is, so thank you. We're just delighted, and um, I want to thank Julie for for looking out for us, and and, um, and, uh, Jay, who is just, I tell you, as um, you really want to talk at a conference where there's another circuit where there's another circuit speaker on the committee because or speaker on the committee because they really look out for you the fruit basket was that not the best fruit basket sandy what do you think wasn't it just all of it just really really a good time so i thank you um and uh hi to the the poor smokers who have been banished to the basement i guess i suppose i should be down there later um So I, I was busy today laying on the beach and making a lot of phone calls. And I was calling, and that's a tradition in where the people that help me get sober is that on our, our A birthdays or anniversaries, you call people and thank them. Not a lot of people to call. I called Florida and I called Honolulu and made several calls to Los Angeles. And, uh, and uh, you know, I am... Uh, I am blessed, and I am the product of um, Alcoholics Anonymous, absolutely. I am so, so blessed. I I really am. And before I forget, I want to welcome anyone um, who is new to Alcoholics Anonymous. I welcome you here, and I would like you to know, if you haven't figured out yet, that there's something extraordinary about what you are sitting in. A works, and it works well. I have no bad news about my life in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's not to say that, you know, that life that bad things haven't happened to me in the 19 years I've been sober because I don't, it's life on life's terms. I don't get any dispensation from reality as much as I would like that. Um, I get the tools to deal with reality, but, but my life is good. 
It really is. And, you know, and if you're new and sitting here and wondering, you know, does this work? And I assure you that it does. And it is working at this moment and in this place. It is working. Um, 19 years is a long time between cocktails for somebody like me. And I can tell you just from where I stand and knowing that I'm looking out into a sea of alcoholics, you know, the view from here is fantastic. And we should not look like this or smell like this or laugh like this. Um, A works. It does. You know, I... um, Jay asked me to do this, I don't know, months ago, maybe a year ago, and I said yes, and he said he would be here, and I said I would be here, and we were both here. And this took a lot of planning, I know that, and, uh, you know, all done by alcoholics. I mean, you know, we are people who shouldn't be able to do stuff like that. And, uh, and even just, you know, on a regular basis, something like this, but just a, regular meetings that, that go on night after night after night. You get there, and the lights are on, and the chairs are set up, and the coffee is made. Um, you know, by alcoholics. And I know for me, I came in here on just a string of broken promises and, you know, wasted opportunities and things I'd flaked out on and not been able to finish anything and then not being able to start anything. And and, uh, I don't live like that anymore. And I know a lot of other people who don't either. And and it's, it's really... It's, it's really pretty good. One of the people I was talking to, I got sober in Honolulu, and I was talking, actually, he was, he's in Las Vegas now, but I was talking to him, and he said, you know, I, I remember when you had three years and we're, and, and we're getting your driver's license, you know, and I'd forgotten about that. Or he said, you know, when you were, you were too afraid to, to walk into meetings, that reminded me of a time when I was fairly new, maybe in my first year, um, and I got into the meeting, and I was able to get to the bathroom, as far as the bathroom. And then I couldn't get out of the bathroom. I got seized with one of those attacks of terror that we sometimes get seized with, and I could not get out of that bathroom. And uh, I tried the window, but it didn't open. I scrambled up onto the toilet and was tried to take down the, there was like a vent thing. I thought maybe I'd go out that way. Um, you know, it's been a slow process for me. Um, but I don't live that way anymore. I, I have a, a quite a measure of freedom in my life today there's very there's just I can't think of a place that um that I couldn't go or feel like I couldn't walk into with my head held up and I I have you to thank for that um let me see oh about he mentioned my driver's license and that's another thing that reminds me I've gotten some big deals since I've been sober, would have been big deals to me. But some of the things are just the, the littlest things. You know, I, I left uh, my car is at, at the airport in Los Angeles, and it has 140,000 miles on it and two hubcaps, and it's pretty dirty. But it's, um, uh, there is, um, I have a license to drive that car right there in my wallet down there with my current address. And there's an insurance card for it in there. The, the license plate on that car has tags on it that are current tags, and I bought those tags. I did not take a straight-edge razor blade and scrape those tags <laughs> off of anybody else's. I bought and, pay, and I bought them with money that I earned, not money that I pinched from the till. Um, some of that stuff just amazes me today because it was that kind of stuff that I just – and I did some wild things when I was younger and drinking and traveled and ran off to China and did things in Nepal, and, and people would say, oh, you're so brave, and – it was precisely the opposite. I was terrified. And I can get on a plane with dark glasses and a, dark sunglasses and a hangover, and, but I don't know how to stay somewhere and apply for a driver's license. You know, I don't know how to keep an appointment um, and stuff like that. I just, and that was the stuff that 
separated me from the rest of the world. And I didn't know that. And I used to think, because I'm such a runner, and I used to think that, that freedom was in having no responsibility and that people would just get off my back. And that's why I was always going places, you know, because the responsibilities would come along and then forget it, I'm out of here. And, you know, and, and, and if people just leave me alone, that would be freedom. And you taught me, actually, that it's, it's, it's quite the opposite, that in freedom is in facing those responsibilities and showing up no matter what, day after day after day. And, you know, the big stuff, the big dramas are easy for me, and I think maybe for most of us. It's the trudging that's so hard. You know, it's the day-to-day walk that gets so hard. Um, and, uh, and oddly enough, you know, I learned how to do that by, you know, going to being at my home group no matter what, or, you know, having little jobs to do at those meetings, that type of thing. And, you know, it talks about that in the Satisfactions of Right Living, about service gladly rendered and obligations squarely met, that these are the satisfactions of right living. And, and I've really found that to be very, very true to me, uh, for me. It wasn't always that way, however, and I'll go back a little bit. Um, I was born and start there. Um, I grew up in, I was born in Santa Cruz, which is a small town um, south of uh, San Francisco on uh, Monterey Bay, very lovely place. And I used to think that I had this kind of sad childhood on kind of an epic scale, and I've really been brought down to right size in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the last few years of my life, I've been a teacher in Los Angeles, so my perceptions of unhappy childhoods have altered considerably. Um, but, um, you know, we, I'm the youngest of four. We had blue sky over our head and didn't worry about you know, violence or things like that. And um, it was a lovely place, beach town, similar, something like this, but the ocean's on the other side. But, um, <laughs> and, uh, but it, you know, it was an alcoholic home. And I'm not here, you know, I'm not here to demonize my parents. I have a fantastic relationship with my family, and I, I, I don't think there, you know, wouldn't be much I'd trade about that experience. But I guess to a certain extent we're products of our environment. And I, as I said, I used to think it was kind of this really sad uh, situation, but you know it wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, we're, our Christmas lights stayed up all year. We were the family whose garbage cans were out all week. You know that type of thing. Lots of broken windows at our house. Um, remember the glass man had been there for like the third time in a week. And as he was leaving, he stuck his head back in the front door and said to my mom, "Lady, you are the captain of a strange ship." And that kind of described <laughs> life at our house. Um, my father was a truck trucker and a hard hat, and he'd be gone for long stretches of time and. And they'd reappear, and sometimes he'd be beat up, or sometimes he'd, my mom would go and get him out of jail. And the neighbors were never that fond of us. But um, um, I, and my my, uh, my mom was a uh, was a librarian, local librarian in our town, and and uh, she was the one who kind of held it all together. But she would certainly have her breaking points, and I can never help telling the story about her. Um, there was a uh, leaky faucet at the library that they weren't fixing, and it kept dripping day after day, and one day she snapped. And because and she could really hold it together for a long time, then it would just all get too much. And she called down to City Hall and said, if you don't get someone here to fix this leaky faucet, I'm going to run nude down Woodrow Avenue with a sign around my neck that says I work for the city of Santa Cruz, and I've been driven mad by a leaky faucet. So it's <laughs> kind of my, the gene pool that I'm dealing with here. I should tell you, though, that AA was working in my life long before I ever picked up a drink. My father left when I was 10 or 12 or so. He didn't go far. He went down the street with another woman and her children, which you know, I love that. Only an A is that funny. <laughs> I guess I just, 
you know, Sandy was talking about that last night, and wasn't that a great talk? And she was talking, and I, you know, I mean, I have been at A memorials, right? And and there's, you know, all the A people, and then there's the regular family. You're like, yeah, and we went and got him off the skid row, and he had two black eyes, and no, and we're just like, ah, oh, and you know, and the family is just horrified. We, Lex and I were, we go to a Monday night, Monday night at Howie Avenue meeting, and um. Someone was telling a story about how losing his children, and it was the funniest thing. I mean, it's all funny, you know, because we're in the lifeboat, right? I mean, we're, we don't live that way anymore. And that's not just, you're not laughing. It's joy, really, I think, is what that is, that we don't, you know, we don't live that way anymore. Um, anyway, so my dad was nearby, but uh, uh, down the street, and it was my grandfather. My grandfather was sober, an Alcoholics Anonymous. He got sober in Eureka, California. I guess sometime in the 40s, because I have his big book. It's the first edition, 11th printing, So, and it was before the traditions. Um, and uh, so it was my grandfather, as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, undoubtedly. He died when I was 14, when my, I was just starting to drink. Um, but I, looking back, I remember his funeral, was standing room only. I imagine it was all filled with members of Alcoholics Anonymous, probably. Um, but looking back on how, you know, he was the one, he put braces on my teeth. And he, my mom did, my mom rented rooms and stuff like that. But my grandfather also helped her with the mortgage and so that we didn't lose the house. And he paid the tuition at the Catholic school that I went to. And, and uh, he had a little cabin up on the Eel River up in Humboldt County up there. And that was, you know, we could have vacations up there and that type of stuff. And, you know, had he not been a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, even before I drank, my my life was would probably have been very different. So my debt to you is really enormous. Um, I, uh, as I said, I went to Catholic school. I don't mean to offend anybody here. I loved Catholic school. Um, I don't think I'm recovering from that experience. Um, and that's just my experience. It was a very positive experience for me. I. Um, I work well under structure, I think, like a lot of alcoholics, because the world is kind of a baffling place, and if you tell me what to wear and what to do, and I was very comfortable in that environment, and I, you know, and I, certainly the values that, uh, that they inculcated there um, are ones that I'm happy to have today. And when I got here and heard things like, you know, being of service and, you know, living lives with, with purpose and meaning, those weren't new concepts to me, but I had lost them and couldn't find my way back. I, you know, I was raised with that and loved it. I had wonderful examples around me, um, but I, I couldn't find my way back to it because of my drinking, and I have found my way back to it in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm, I'm, uh, that makes me very happy. Um, anyway, so but I can tell you that, uh, oh my goodness, I'm going to take a drink here. Um, I, uh, where do you, um, let me graduate from the eighth grade. Um, when I graduated from the eighth grade, um, and I just kind of set this up because I, the morning after my eighth grade graduation, I came out. My mom's at the kitchen table, and she had my diploma, and I'd won some little pins and stuff like that. And she said to me, Ken, I finally got my scholar. And as I said, I'm the youngest of four, and there's other alcoholics in my family. And, uh, and I can tell you that, and I didn't know that day that that was going to be the last diploma I was going to get until I was 33 years old. Um, but uh, I, about a year later, maybe not even a year later, I was standing behind my mom again. This time I was behind the counter at the Joliner Schnitzel, which I don't know if you, that's a fast food place. Um, and I was working there full time. I had dropped out of high school with a 0 0.8 GPA. And my mom was there because I hadn't been home the night before. 
and maybe not the night before that. And so she would go to the, where I hung out or where I worked, and she was standing there trying not to cry and saying to me, you know, I don't understand what's happened to you. You used to be, you used to be so active. And she met in our parish and stuff and with the youth group and so on. And, and, you know, I didn't understand it either. It's very clear to me now. I'm one of those alcoholic women, or I was a girl, really, that I took the drink and the drink took me. It was just that, that simple. Um, but I didn't understand at the time, and so I did the stuff that we often do, and I didn't know I was doing that. I was defending my right to drink. Get out of here. Leave me alone. You know, you don't care, that type of thing. And, you know, I can remember one particular morning um, being dropped off, you know, by some guy. And I, that was never the plan. You know, I was just going to go out the night before, have a good time. And, and uh, you know, I, uh, I'm still on the clothes the night before and sick and shaking. And my mom hadn't gone to work yet. And I just couldn't go in the house and face her because I knew that she'd been up all night worrying about me. And I said, you know, drive around the corner. And he dropped me off there. And I sat on the curb and um, shook and and she finally went to work, and I went into the house, and there was a note from her on the refrigerator that said, don't you realize what it does to me when you do this? And, you know, yes, I did, but I was powerless to stop. I was really powerless to stop. And it seemed like, um, I, and so that began a series of geographics. It seemed like my friends could just party on the weekends and end up back at school and that type of thing, and I wasn't able to do that. And, and uh so I went off to Honolulu. I had an older sister living there. She seemed so much older. She was only 19 and practicing our disease, and she had just had a, a baby, a little baby boy that she was raising by herself, and uh, and so I went to join the happy family there, these two teenage alcoholic girls and a, and a little boy, and, you know, wherever you go, there you are, and there I was, and things weren't any better there, and I enrolled in a high school and went a time or two, and just, that, you know, didn't, we ended up losing our apartment. And we were homeless for a while and staying on friends' couches and stuff like that. And it was just, it was just hideous, actually. Um, and uh, to make matters worse, I got drunk and I got pregnant in that order. And, uh, and I terminated that pregnancy, and I'm not here to moralize about that for anybody but me. Um, it, you know, it, it had been maybe not even a year before that that I'd been, con- maybe nine months before that I'd been confirmed in the Catholic Church and that faith that meant so important, that was meant so much to me. And, you know, not even a year into my drinking, I was crossing lines that I was never going to cross, you know. And very early into my drinking, I certainly knew what pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization was. And I'm, you know, and I have to drink because I can't stand the way that I feel when I'm sober and the shame and the remorse and the guilt. And, 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 and you know, and I was off and running. And I decided that California, that Hawaii was the problem. I was going to get back to California. I'd forget that ever happened. And I'd start fresh. I was always looking for a fresh start. And... And back to California, I went, and this was when my restaurant career started there at the Wiener Schnitzel. And, um, you know, I didn't know that I was going to work in restaurants for the next 17 years and the first 11 years of my sobriety. And there's nothing wrong with doing that kind of work, but I was never happy doing it. And it was just going to be a real, uh, just a temporary job until my real life started. Um, And I carried that with me, you know, that delusion with me for years into sobriety. I'm old-timer in my home group, Marianne. says that she never knew the difference between a fantasy and a plan, and that really, that's a, a good apt description for me. Um, anyway, so I'm working at the Dwayne Schinsel, and I met him, and um, we've all got, you know, one or two of those, um, Mr. Wright. He's currently Mr. D85602 to the warden at Soledad, but at the time he seemed so charming and exciting. Um, 
And, you know, my dates were starting to say things like, you smell like a brewery, and what are those slash marks on your wrist? And my mom says, you can't come over anymore, and, you know, that time. And he didn't say any of that stuff. And he woke up with the shakes like I did, and if I rolled over and threw up in his plant, that was fine with him, and, and it, it was on. Um, so, but, you know, I'm just crossing those lines, and... Um, I ended up losing the. He he never he didn't no, did, never worked. He I think he works in the bakery now at the penitentiary. But um, <laughs> he didn't work of his own accord. And um, so uh, you know I'm stealing money from the Dewiner Schnitzel and all kinds of stuffs going on there. And and I ended up losing that job. I, I think I quit just before I was fired. It was definitely coming. Um, I'd been drinking on the beach all day. And you know how that drinking in the sun is just a whole different thing. There's something about that drinking in the sun. Um, and I uh, showed up there and I got into another, I got into a little fist fight with another employee in the parking lot. And even Julina Schnitzel has standards. And we were <laughs> rolling around in the parking lot. And then I ran through the, through the back. Um, I'm sorry, you know, there's seats up here. There's a whole row of them if anybody wants to come and sit down. I see you guys standing back there just... FYI. Anyway, there they are. Um, so, uh, and I ran through the back door and, uh, you know, behind the counter and made a drunken scene and, uh, just, you know, just those small little humiliations, you know, just those little petty ways that we nickel and dime and sell out. Just, ugh. Um, so the end was coming at Joanna Schnitzel. So I, I, uh, I got a job with the Great American Wiener Works um, across town. <laughs> And, and they served beer, which was a step up. So, And I have a tendency to look like a nice girl. And so uh, they would leave me. It was a little mom and, plop, mom and pop place, and they'd leave me and this other girl to run things. And so, of course, you know, I've got my head under the Coors tap and loading cases of beer out the back door. And things were just rapidly. I was just circling the drain. Um, that relationship with that young man got crazier and more and more violent and I was certainly a part of that and and uh, I had this car and uh, of course you know no driver's license no registration no insurance that was just you know it was just more than I can hand could handle in fact I didn't even know how to drive and I bought the car first and eventually learned how to drive it and I I get in these little accidents with it and it had no I was thinking about that car recently it had it end by the time I was done with it it had no brake lights there had been an electrical fire over on the passenger side, so that side was all burned up. And I had a book of matches that would hold the window up on this side, but sometimes the matches would slip, and because I'd need those, you know, to light my joints. And, and so the, the book of matches would get smaller, and then one day the window just clunked down and shattered, and then hunks of glass are coming out all the time. And and uh, what, what other problems did it have? Um, oh, it didn't have brakes. And eventually and so you know how you just learn how to downshift and then use the emergency brake I got pretty good at that and um, yeah, it just you know drinking can be a lot of work it can really be a lot of work and um, so uh, and you know I would and I'd, I'd try I think I'm gonna you know I should get a driver's license I should get insurance I should get to get all right you know the big thing for me is birth control I'm gonna go and I'm gonna do it and if I could even make the appointment and then keep the appointment and then I'd go in and then the inevitable what was the first day of your last period and I would think who would know that forget it you know just and so it was hard okay so I'm working okay I totaled the car in a blackout 
That's what happened. And it was one of those, you know, and I, the, my blackouts were getting, because I'm just, I'm 17, 18, just turning 18. I don't want to know what I did anymore. I don't, you know, don't tell me, please. I don't want to know. And uh, so this, it was that weight on my chest where I, you know, I knew something had gone really wrong the night before. I wasn't quite sure. I thought it had something to do with the car. I went out and there it was all smashed up. And there was pieces missing. And I borrowed my mom's car and went back across town to see if I could maybe find those pieces and find out what, you know, what I had done. And I found myself looking through the newspaper the next day to see if I'd hit anyone or killed anyone. Not a real pleasant morning after feeling. And, and, uh, and calling friends to try and could, you know, you can't let them know that you don't know what went on, but maybe they could give you some insight without them knowing that you don't know. And it's just exhausting. Um, so suddenly Hawaii didn't look so bad after all. And, and that, as I said, my, that relationship with that boyfriend was real crazy and violent, and I had to get away from that. And so back one, one more time, one-way ticket, back to Honolulu, back to the place I said I'd never go. And now what was had once been the answer and became the problem, now it's the answer again, and, and I'm back. And I, I had turned 18 by that time, got a job in a bar drinking ages 18, and I used to think that was the most glamorous bar. We had um, four bands a day and $1.50 drinks and two Elvis impersonators. <laughs> it was in, uh, in Waikiki in the International Marketplace. I want you to know I got the opportunity to speak there uh, last Easter, and I went back to that bar, and two of those bands are still there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm there, and I'm working, and... Uh, Moved back in with my sister. and But you know what? I'm just crossing those lines. And by the time I'm 19, I'm on my fourth abortion. And how would that happen? And, you know, I had never planned on living that way. And now I really have to drink, you know. And I did not see how I could redeem or, you know, salvage a life like that. I just thought I'm just going to go on like this until, you know. But I was, you know, still fairly young. And um, so on, I just, it just went like that. And, I, you know, I'm not drinking in the bars anymore or the clubs because they want you to do things like dance and have a conversation. And. That stuff cuts into my drinking time, and I ended up um, drinking in um, in the strip bars, or if there's any military personnel out there, what we call the Korean bars or the hostess bars in Honolulu, because, you know, we seek lower companions, and I could look at the women on stage or selling drinks and the other things that they sold and, and say, well, at least I'm not doing that, you know. Um, and I'll tell you, I wasn't above that, believe me, but by the time I hit those bars, I just didn't have the self-esteem to ask for a job, and those bars are really dark and the booths are really high because other things go on in them besides drinking and um and i like that uh the darkness and the you know just and i you know i could just drink and, and be left alone and, and uh they uh were open until 4 a.m and they reopen at 6 a.m and i like that too and but i used to worry about those two hours of downtime in there you know how it, how that gets it gets to be so much work and and so because the liquor store stopped selling at midnight and so just before Midnight, I'd run downstairs from the bar that I worked at and get a couple little, some, some of those airplane bottles of vodka to keep with me in case I wasn't where I needed to be between 4 and 6 a.m. Not social drinking, I guess. Um, I ended up uh, living in an apartment that was very much like the house I grew up in. Um, first phone call that I made to you was from a pay phone. In front, as I said, the house I grew up in, you know, a lot of times the power would be cut off, the phone would be cut off, that type of thing. Um, uh, First call I made was uh, to you was from a payphone from a front of a liquor store because our phone was cut off and and I couldn't go in that liquor store anymore because I'd been drunk and profane in there or obscene um, to be more specific and and when I couldn't go in that liquor store anymore the 
and because I, after I left that total car in California, I never drove again. You know, I, I wanted this big, colorful life like most alcoholics do, and my life just got so small until it just really was shrunk down to its narrowest dimensions because anything that got in the way of drinking had to, you know, fell by the wayside, and, and it was just this tiny little life. And I didn't drive, and it was just the bar I worked at, my apartment, and the, the bars I drank at. Um, a freeway off-ramp and scramble up an embankment and cut through a hole in a chain-link fence to get to the liquor store because that's where the liquor store was. No big deal. Um, I, uh, that apartment, as I said, there was a, we had louvered windows. It was this hideous cinder block building, the, the ugliest building on the island of Oahu. Um, the cinder block building with, uh, between the city bus yard and the freeway off-ramp and our, we had these windows in the bottom, five or six were broken out, and there was these wild cats that lived in that city bus yard, and they'd come in through those windows and get in the trash and spray all over. And, and uh, that married boyfriend of mine, oh, I, I forgot about him, sorry. I got a boyfriend. <laughs> he was one of the Elvis's bass players, and, uh, and he was married, and that was a problem. Um, so anyway, he, he was saying he didn't you know, want to come over anymore because the way that I lived, and I just thought he was paranoid. And, I remember he, he came over one afternoon. Obviously, we couldn't go to his place. Um, he came over one afternoon, and I had, had, I had stitches on my ankle. I'd, and I'd been, by the time I, I cut open my ankle at work at the bar, and I just sat down and started drinking, you know, like, great, get to start drinking earlier. Never stitches, who cares? And it just kept bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. And I'd cut open a vein down there. And so by the time I got to the hospital, I think they could see I could self-medicate. And um, they... They stitched it up, but they didn't give me any pain medication. The next day, I was kind of half hungover, half drunk, stumbling around, a lot of pain. And he came over, and he said, you know, look at, look at your ankle. And that place where the stitches were was just black with fleas. And, um, you know, I dine out on that story a lot. But um, I'll tell you, it's an image I want to keep really fresh in my mind. Because if I ever think there's any glamour left in a cocktail for me, you know, that's the way that I lived as a practicing woman alcoholic. And this is great. Coming here four days in the, on a lovely beach and good food and fellowship, this is great. But A is not always convenient, you know. This is great, but the Pomona Alano Club, you know, on a Thursday night in two hours of traffic or answering my phone or any of those things, you know, if I ever think that something like this or the other things that we're asked to do is not convenient, that I really want to keep that image really fresh in my mind because I have a very good life um, as a result of staying in the middle of you guys. I, uh, when I got to, to you, like towards the end of my drinking, I, I, uh, I was 22 years old, I was about 84 pounds, and my hair was falling out, my gums were receded from malnutrition, and uh, you know, I'd been things, feeling things on my skin, things crawling on my skin and hearing voices. Do you ever remember that? Did you get that one where it's like someone was calling your name from a long way off? And, and I'd wake up in the night, you know, just in terror, think there's somebody under my bed or out on my lanai. And um, I didn't know that was alcoholism. You know, I didn't know if the alcohol was taking me to crazy or keeping me from going there, you know. And I was in that place. I can't live with it, and I can't live without it. And um, so, you know, so there I was. And that day came for me, just nothing was working. Just nothing was working. I always kept a bottle of vodka in the freezer. 
And it was just a new level of desperation that day, you know. And I would have those terrible alcohol poisoning hangovers. And, I, and I'd be in that place where sometimes then my body would get really drunk, but my mind would still be sober, you know. And I, and I used to have this huge capacity for alcohol, but then I would just take one or two drinks, and I didn't know if I was going to be slurring or what would happen to me. Um, and that's another reason why I just started going to the bars I was going to, because, you know, my behavior got really unpredictable. And... and um, uh, I, you know, these the days my I'd come to like three or four in the afternoon. That was like my morning, and and I would just stand at the sink and and you know vomit liver bile and 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 try and keep some drops of water on my tongue, and my head would just race. It would just say the same thing over and over. Normal people don't do this. Normal people don't do this. And I'd try to get through that hangover to get it together, to get in a taxi cab, to get to the with a hat pulled down over my eyes, to get to the bar that I worked at, to get to the bars that I drank at, to do it again and again and again. So as I said, this day came, 1985, and, and uh, you know, the voices were on me, and, and I I'd had that uh, vodka in the freezer, and that wasn't working, and I started to pray that day, and I hadn't been able to do that for a long time, and I guess that was the difference, and, and I, you know, then several things happened that day that I traced back to how desperate I felt and how desperately I prayed. Um, I went to that payphone at the liquor store. I called my boss. I didn't have anybody to call. I had, you know, very few girlfriends or anybody in my life. But my boss had always been kind of sympathetic because I'd go on these like seven-hour crying jags, and he was kind of sympathetic. And and he said he'd come and get me, and he did. And and uh, we and we had drank together a lot. My boss and I, I mean, we all, you know, in the bar business, everybody drinks. And and uh, he came and he said, you know, you, he looked at me and I was sick and shaking. He said, you need a drink. Let you know, let's go get a drink. And and I said to him, no, take me to the hospital. And I didn't know, you know, what I was going to get there. And I was hoping maybe a little sympathy, a little Valium um, <laughs> in that order. And I got neither. I'm really glad. I think sympathy in particular is lethal for alcoholics. Um, I, first I saw a nurse and I said to her, you know, I can probably stop the cocaine, but I can't stop drinking. I can't stop drinking. And my secret was out. And she said, my boyfriend's an alcoholic, and he goes to AA. And it wasn't one alcoholic relating to another, but I really think I just laid it down. You know, I just took the first step. I really started to surrender there. And then I saw a doctor who I thought was very cruel who said, you know what, you're an alcoholic, and we can't help you, and here's some phone numbers, which were to treatment centers, and good luck and goodbye. And I thought, you know, he's supposed to help people. And, you know, I didn't realize that he was helping people because he really got my, he didn't hold my hand and say, here's something to soothe your nerves. And, you know, he didn't, he did not medicalize my problem. And I understand today it's not necessarily that he didn't care. He didn't have an answer. He did not have an answer. And as a result of those phone numbers he gave me, I found myself, I got to my first AA meeting. I did not come in here and feel like I was home. Um, I would see you guys laughing and talking and smiling and think, I am never going to feel like that. I will never have that light in my eyes. I'll never be comfortable in my skin like that. But I did a couple things right. I got a home group. That's the Steps to Freedom group. They still meet in Honolulu on Tuesday nights. And two of the people I called today, 19 years later, uh, were people who were members of that group. And, and they used to say a lot in those days to hang with the winners, and that ended up happening for me, not because I sought them out. I didn't know what that meant. They sought me out. That's exactly what made them winners. And all those people are still sober today. One of them runs um, Greg Muth. He runs um, a general service office in New York. And, uh, you know, they talked about sponsorship and service and and working the steps. And I just kind of tagged along. And I got a sponsor. And I remember the first time I took a service commitment. And 
the, this person, Greg, in fact, he was so delighted. He was so delighted when I showed up there. I just thought, what is the big deal? And I know, now I know, because he knew that I had a chance, that I was, you know, that I, I was getting involved and I had a chance. And um, I, uh, I got a sponsor and began, and the first three steps were, were fairly easy to me. You know, there was no doubt that I was powerless over alcohol in my life, wasn't as unmanageable. And, it was clear to me, uh, coming to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, it was clear to me that I was living in a state of grace, that something was happening in my life. And I, I stole this from uh, my friend Clint Hodges, who says, uh, in, in Bill's story, Bill talks about how he had that spiritual experience of the white light variety and God's impact on him was sudden and profound. And sometimes we have a tendency to think, you know, well, where's my spiritual experience? And I have to remember that on September 23rd, 1985, I could not not drink. And on September 24th, 1985, I didn't drink. And God's impact on me was sudden and profound. And it has been that way up until tonight. Um, so that was really clear. As scary as those early days was, it was also like... I mean, the obsession was lifted. It was just gone. I wasn't drinking. I was getting up at 8 or 9 in the morning instead of, you know, 3 in the afternoon. And um, The third step was a little scary to me. As I said, I had a Catholic education. I know what it means to turn your will and your life over to God. I'm going to have to join Mary Nall or, you know, go work with Mother Teresa or something. And um, I've since realized that God saves those jobs for people better able to handle them than... <laughs> That wouldn't be me. Um, and then the fourth step. Oh, I was terrified. I didn't want to open that anxiety closet. You know, um, I was afraid that once I opened it, just who knew what would, you know, what would come out and where would it end. And then if it was all out, what would, what's left? There's like going to be a little pile of dust. I didn't know, you know. I, um, but I got uncomfortable enough that I finally did that and and got it all on paper and and. Uh, and took a fifth step, and, and I didn't get what I wanted from that. You know, I, I wanted, you know, Ben-Hur music, and the sky would open up. I've always had these ridiculous expectations, and I'd be completely, you know, comfortable in my skin and no longer have any negative human emotion whatsoever, and, um, and uh, forgetting there's several more steps after that one. And one of my former sponsors, Karen, would always say, Honey, don't try and rise above human. And that's a good thing, good thing for me to remember. Um, but I'll tell you what I got. I felt like, one, I felt like a member in good stand of Alcoholics Anonymous from doing that fourth and fifth step. And I felt like you could look me in the eye, and I didn't have to be afraid of what you were going to see. And I could start to look you in the eye. And uh, dear Al-Anon, Vinoy, so I heard her say once that every alcoholic woman has that little piece of white velvet in her that's never been touched. And I felt like I got that from uh, that fourth and fifth step, and that's a big deal for us Catholic girls, I think. Um, I, uh, I moved to Los Angeles when I had about three years of sobriety, and I had get, got a great foundation in Honolulu. And, and the old-timers in Honolulu said, you know, it's, it's a huge fellowship, and that's true. There's about 2,400 meetings a week in the greater L.A. area, and, you know, you should really get a home group right away because and, and, you could really fall through the cracks. And, and, and that sounded like a plan, but that's not what happened. I, I got there, and, and I think wherever you get sober, that's the definitive AA for you, and they didn't do it in L.A., the way they did at Honolulu, and, and you know, and, and I thought that those things that we say, like listen for the similarities and just the differences, that those only that, that we say those things to newcomers, and that couldn't apply to me with three years after all, and 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 I couldn't hear the message because all I could see were the differences, you know, and um, and and then of course, you know, it doesn't take me long. I'm not at a meeting, or I just drop in one or two times, and then well, it's a click, and they're not friendly there, you know, that type of thing. It never occurred to me maybe I could put my hand out or see what I could do to. And so I just um, 
make a long story shorter, hopefully, um, I got into, I just didn't do well. I was sponsorless for about a year and a half, and I ended up, um, I met up with some old friends up in Santa Cruz, which is, you know, about 300 miles away, but I was going up there on the weekends, and old friends that I used to run around with um, who were, had become heroin addicts, and um, just really was not doing well. It's coming up on my fifth A birthday, I guess, at this point. And I worked with this woman, Marianne. We, we waitressed together, and she had she has 35 years now, so she had about 20 some then. And and I just kind of turned myself in. And and you know, and I knew that she was an active member of A, but she seemed a little, you know, I was, I, you know, I got it doesn't. I mean, it really is a disease of perception. I mean, I just. You know, somehow I was worried that the very life that A was giving me now suddenly, no, if I, you know, A is going to take my life away, and you know, it's and you know, they'll want me to go to those meetings. I mean, it's just crazy how twisted my thinking can get in such a short period of time. But so, she said, "There's one meeting that I go to on Monday nights. Why don't you come?" And I started going to Monday Night Ohio, and uh, at around that time, a uh, uh, another friend of mine, uh, two AA contacts in my life, her and uh, my roommate at the time, and he had heard this woman speak, Karen Garrison. I'm sure a lot of you know Karen. She speaks a lot. And, and um, he said, why don't you ask this woman to be your sponsor? I heard her speak. And I was in no position to interview or anything like that. And, and she was in the same home group of this you know, group I was going to on Monday and Wednesdays. And, and so I, I, uh, you know, I asked her to sponsor me. And, she, and she, I told her all the problems I'd racked up in that year and a half that I'd been without a sponsor. And and uh, she said rapidly, um, honey, I expect a lot from people I sponsor, and with your amount of sobriety, I want you to go to four meetings a week and get commitments to all of them, and I want you to uh, do another fourth and fifth step with me. I want you to start answering phones at Central Office and, and get a um, hospital institution panel, and I want you to get call me on a regular basis, get involved um, with your A sisters, the other women I sponsor. I want you to start sponsoring women, and I thought, I picked the wrong sponsor here. Um, <laughs> her solutions had nothing to do with my problems, for one thing. I thought, did she hear me? But, you know, those problems really just died of neglect because, of course, she knew what to do with me, and that was that, you know, to, when I got busy, I got better. And I had had about a year and a half of self-sponsorship, about a year and a half of the Kenna Show, and it was about all I could stand. And furthermore, I had no fellowship in Southern California Alcoholics Anonymous. I was just out there flapping in the breeze with, you know, very few AA contacts, and she knew that all that stuff was going to get me in the room, in the middle of the room. Um, and and it, and it did. I you know I started doing all that stuff. And you know one day I went to my meeting and I knew 20 people and then 50 people and 100 people. And and it feels really good for someone who's intense and fearful and kind of baffled by life. I you know I feel like I'm I'm on a solid foundation and I'm held up. You know there's a lot of bodies between me and that door and that feels pretty good. You know. Um, and I'm at my best, and I'm in the middle of you. There's no doubt about that. Everything that I've been able that you know, every good thing that I've accomplished in my life has been when I've been right in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, you know, even in nature, in a herd, the ones on the outside are the ones that get picked off. So it's it's a good place to be for me. And um, you know, I I did that fifth step with her, fourth and fifth step. And one of the things that came out on that was I was really ashamed of the fact that I only had an eighth grade education, and you know, I'm still waiting tables and. I guess I had seven or eight years by this time. And she said, you know, well, you know, um, why don't you, uh, and, you know, and by this time I'm, I'm in speaker meetings because it's Southern California and there's all kinds of speaker meetings. I'm hearing these amazing stories, you know, like Clint. I was talking about, you know, I was living in a garage and now I'm a lawyer. And just like, oh, my God, that's fantastic. If I sit in enough of these meetings, I'll become a lawyer, too. This is amazing. <laughs> and, and Karen said, no, honey. You know, God only does for us what we can't do for ourselves. You know, and in a pitch, in a pitch, you're just getting the cliff notes, you know. You don't get the day-to-day, 
you know, the trudging. You know, I, the days, um, I hate to tell you this, but with 19 years, uh, most days my alarm goes off. And I have a great life, so I'm very happy with it. My alarm goes off, and I go, damn it, damn it. <laughs> And I hit snooze. And then I just, you know, and then I slow, I fall, get up, fall on the coffee button, and then I start thinking of what I can call in sick for and when's my next nap, you know? I mean, that's my, that's my reaction to life. But I come here and I, you know, I, I, so much of what I do in Alcoholics Anonymous is living against my own nature, which turns out to be a pretty good thing because um, I get to have a life when I do that. Uh, so anyway, um, so, so why don't you go and get your GED exam and try and um, uh Get your high school diploma, and I thought that was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard. Um, one, I knew I couldn't pass, and two, like, a high school diploma, oh, great. You know, how about a Ph.D., really, Karen? You know how we are, but I didn't say that, and I've since discovered that the action doesn't care what your attitude is about it. Just go ahead and, and do it. And, uh, and something else happened, another, and then there's, by this time I had a new home group, and it, uh, this, my home group that I have now, and another member who said, hey, I heard you're going to go, uh, someone else in my class, class of 85, said, um, I heard you're going to get uh, go for your GED exam. I've been meaning to do that, too. I'll, I'll go with you. Let's do it together. And then, I, you know, we're, there's always somebody else trudging. That was Hank Johnson's um, grandson, actually. Um, somebody was asking me about Hank's. Anyway, so we did that, and um, and uh, much to my surprise, I passed. And 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 uh, at 28 years old, I became a high school graduate, and, and that was a really big deal. And I had just kind of written that off as wreckage of the past, you know. And I'm so glad. I mean, that's what's so – I have no objectivity, obviously, about my own life. And that's what is so wonderful about sponsorship. But somewhere in there, Karen saw that that was something I needed to take care of. And I could not have seen that. I could not have seen it. And, uh, and I, you know, and I did that. And, and I started taking classes at um, Pasadena City College, little community college. And uh, it was not the first community college I'd been to. It was the third. But I'll tell you, and, and, she, and I didn't go in with any big grand plan because I often will do that, and then the minute something doesn't go my way, well, see, forget it. I'm out of here. You know, when they say about, well, there's a requirement or a prerequisite. No, never, you know. Um, and I just, so Karen would just say, honey, just do the next indicated action, just, you know. And so that's what I did. I would just, just whatever was there, just start with one class and would just put one foot in front of the other. And... Um, and the big thing, and I used to think, well, I can't go to school. I don't know anything, you know, and, and I've since learned that's exactly what they're designed for. They're schools, and that's perfectly okay. And, uh, and I just, I just, I showed up. I didn't know that was the big secret to life, you know, that that is the big secret, is that you show up. I mean, we have a saying in my home group, you're at that meeting unless there's a death in the family and it's yours. And when I started applying that to my life, guess what? You know, I showed up for three years at that community college. I showed up on the days I was too dumb and the days I was too smart and every day in between, which was probably one day. And by the time I left there, I had three little jobs and they weren't big deals, but they were to me. I was 29 or 30 years old and, they, you know, it's like filing and stuff like that, but I, they were my first jobs above minimum wage and beyond physical labor. And I was able to cut back on my shifts at the restaurant and, and I just, you know, kept trudging along and um, I, after three years, I, I, and I, and I used to think, well, I can't go to school because I don't have a plan and I don't know what I want to do and I've also learned that's, that's, that's okay at all. You just start, just start, and then it will all evolve. And, and eventually, a plan developed. I wanted to go to a major university. I, I, I decided I wanted to go to UCLA. I wanted to stay in that area. And my sponsor at the time, Karen, was a nurse at UCLA, and that's what I wanted to do. And, but I could not meet their math requirement. I took the same math class three times. 
and had to withdraw before I failed. And I and I had taken, five, I think, I don't know, another, it took me just even to get to that class, it took me three times of failing to anyway. It just was, uh, it wasn't pleasant. So, and I had math anxiety tapes and tutors and everything. At my, all the, they do have those, all the footwork that I could think of and, and just kept trudging. And, and, and I eventually I went and had myself tested for a learning disability there on, on campus. And, um, and, um, and I was told that indeed I did have a severe learning disability in math. And they, I was tested in the second percentile. And I don't know about, much about numbers, but I know that's pretty low. There's only one number below that one. And <laughs> they even they drew an arrow pointing down on their little graph for your visual learner. And I was told by, by the woman who ran that um, that I would not have a university education. I should set my sights lower on maybe a vocational school or a non-accredited school because um, the UCLA would not, you know, not to apply there and I would not be considered. And, uh, but nobody in A told me that. And my sponsor just said, honey, you just keep knocking on doors and just keep trying. I've since learned as work, working in education that one no means very little. It just often could mean that someone was misinformed, and that was the case. And against the advice of the Office of Student Disabilities and against the advice of my counselor, I applied to UCLA. It's a good thing I got in because it's the only school I applied to. I didn't know anything about acceptance rates, or I just, I, I just had to do what was in front of me. And, um, in June of 97, I got to put on a cap and gown for the first time in my life. I was 33 years old, and I graduated from UCLA. And uh, I got to give the commencement address at that graduation. And uh, the, probably the best part about that day was that my mom got to sit in the VIP section, and, and, uh, and she had her scholar back, you know. And that was really, really a gift from you. There was a little... Um, reception ahead of time, this um, robing ceremony where they they dressed the, you know, the, the, the other speakers. There was a, one of Clinton's ambassadors to the Middle East and the other professors and stuff, and they dressed them in their academic regalia, um, you know, from Princeton or what have you. And, and, and uh, so we were at that before the ceremony started. And then I come along with my guests, one, my sponsor time, Karen Garrison, a woman who came out of a blackout walking naked down a highway, and, um, and another member of my home group who did, you know, like 19 years in the penitentiary. And, I thought, God, if they only knew, but um, so I'll tell you, I put a lot of expectations on that degree. I didn't realize I was doing it at the time. And don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, getting education has been great for me, but guess what? It's not a cure for alcoholism. And, you know, I was thinking, well, once, just like with that first four step, you know, once I have this degree, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll no longer be fearful and I won't feel like the truck driver's daughter anymore and I'll be confident in everything I do. And. You know, I, I still have alcoholism and, and, and humanness. So, um, and I just, I really floundered for a while. I, I wanted to say I was going to teach for a year and then go to graduate school. And, um, and then I, but I never really thought I was going to finish school. I just, it's just something you say when people say, what are you going to do when you're done with school? I just kind of said that. And then I really did finish school, and then I had to do what I said I was going to do. And, and I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. And I was kind of looking for jobs, and I taught kindergarten for a minute, and, or like an after-school kindergarten program. And, and my fears were justified. They say things like, is that your real hair? Because you look like you have some other hair underneath. Um, and... Uh, and I was just, I just, it was, I just floundered for, for months. I was, and I was angry and just really had a hard time there and, and was afraid. And 
a friend of mine in the pro, and I'm saying the third step prayer and the seventh step prayer, and God, where should I serve? I'm going to wrap this up here. Um, you know, what would you have me do and all of that? And, and uh, a friend of mine in the program, girlfriend of mine, Lisa Johnson, is saying to me, um, you know, we really need a teacher uh, where, where I'm teaching at Special Ed Middle School, LA Unified, and, you know, in Gardena, why don't you come and take the job? I was like, no way. No LA Unified. I mean, I read the LA Times. 850,000 students, 50 of whom, 50% of whom are failing. They're short 45,000 seats. I mean, no, no thanks. Middle school, that 12, 13-year-old eye-rolling, chicken-necking age. No. <laughs> no. Special ed. And where is Gardena? None of the above. No thanks. God, where should I serve? What would you have me do? You know. And she was, my friend was relentless for months. This went on from June to January. About, you know, we, we, we really, I mean, and they truly were desperate for teachers all over, still are in those areas. Um, leave me alone. I'm not doing that, you know. Um, and, of course, I didn't know God did such a good impression of my friend Lisa. You know, I'm looking for this answer. And, and then I made the mistake of mentioning that job to my sponsor. And um, my sponsor today is a, a woman named Marion, and, and she's just celebrated 40 years of sobriety. And this one particularly bitter day, and I said, well, there's this one job I can get, but it's special ed middle school, and nobody wants those jobs, and which is true, and, and that's why I can get the job, and I felt this chill come across the phone. You know when you've gone too far, you get the, <laughs> you get the sponsor frost, I was like, oh, and she said, you know, as the mother of a former special ed student, I think you could really be of service there, and I think you know in your heart that that's where you're supposed to be. And the minute she said that, I did know in my heart that that's where I was supposed to be. And I realized I'd known it all along. But that wasn't the answer that I wanted. And, and when I'm praying to be shown and I'm praying for the fear to be removed, I just mean remove the fear. I did not mean I mean to 163rd in Normandy to some out-of-control middle school with 3,000 kids. Um, you know, that's not what I meant at all. Um, and this school, you know, we certainly had a lot of problems. California ranks their schools on a scale of 1 to 10, and this, a 10 is the highest, the school is a 2. And we had, you know, a lot of problems. And, uh, you know, and, and they just, there was no training. They just handed me the key and said, it's down there, room 5. That was the training. <laughs> and I tried to tell my friend Lisa, I can't do this. You know, I don't have any training for teaching special ed. And she said, Alcoholics Anonymous is the best train I've ever had <laughs> teaching special ed. And, you know, she's been right about that, and I'll tell you why. I mean, these kids had problems, big problems. Most of them group homes, uh, foster care system, that kind of stuff. And, you know, I mean, one boy that I often use as an example, he uh, had been in seven foster care placements. He had no fingers on one hand. His grandmother burned them off. And the stove, the same year both his parents had been murders and murdered in separate drug things. Um, his grandmother was now out of prison, and a judge had just returned him to her. And, yeah, and this stuff all shows up in the classroom, the way it all shows up in AA, though. All that craziness, all that insanity, you know. And I would tell my sponsor, like, I can't do this. I cannot do this. And, um, you know, she'd say, you don't, and believe me, I, Michelle Pfeiffer's not going to play me in any movie. I did not make any miracles happen there. I want to be clear about that. I make a lot of mistakes, a lot. Um, but children are very forgiving. And... Uh, you know, she'd say, you can't cure that. Just, you know, just that, yes, you can. You know, they gave the key to you. It's your name on the board. You know, yes, you can do that. And, and, and uh, so I just thought, you know, what do I know? What do I know best? And, and the thing that I know best is Alcoholics Anonymous. And I started using that as a model in my classroom. I had a lot of help from my friend also. And, you know, because uh, 
the same things going. You know, when I come here, no, no matter no matter where I've come from, you're kind to me. You remember my name. You invite me to come back, and that's what I know. And in spite of all the forms of insanity that we have brought into this room, sanity prevails in this room tonight, no matter where we've come from. And 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 when I look at you know would look at these kids, and think you know oh you know I mean they're, they just seem to have such the deck is so stacked against them. But I'd think about A and think, you know, we're all walking dead here. We're all walking dead. And so when I could just kind of do that, and I started looking at them the way that you looked at me when I started going to school. And nobody ever said, how long have you been waiting tables? And what makes you think you could, you know? Nobody ever said that. Um, or, or no matter how tore back somebody is when they come in here, we might think like, oh, gee, you know, they'll never make it. We might think that, but we don't say that. We don't look at them like that because there's something bigger at work here, so much bigger at work. And and uh, and I got so I, you know, I got through that year. And I and I and it was, I was 11 years sober before I could say I, I had a job that I loved. As hard as it was, I had a job that I loved, and I got to feel comfortably and usefully whole. Um, but I still had my plan, and that was, I was, as I said, I was going to teach for a year and go to graduate school. And so um, I did that. I, I went up to uh, Stanford and got a master's degree, and I was up there for a year. And I didn't put quite the same expectations on the second degree that I did on the first, but still, you know, I, I decided I wanted to teach community college middle school, I mean community college uh, English, because that community college experience had, had done so much for me. And... I didn't get a full-time job, but I got a part-time job, and I ended up back on. I ended up on the faculty at Pasadena City College, where um, my learning disability was diagnosed, and where um, you know Karen had sent me to. Um, I just, I guess I'm just, you know, it's because thinking about all this because of my birthday, it's, it just makes me extra grateful. I mean, I can remember calling her, and being too afraid to walk in the classroom, and calling her from a payphone and saying, "I can't, you know, I can't do it. I can't walk in there." And you, and lovingly, she'd say, you get in there and don't call me until you do, bam. And, um, <laughs> you know, and then I, was the, then I was the teacher. Then I was on the faculty there, and I saw me walking through the door. It was me in a male form, but, you know, I had that terror and that, and I, you know, it was really nice to have that experience. So I taught there for a year, but I found that my heart was really at 163rd in Normandy teaching special ed middle school. And, and I kind of had to let my plan go, and, I, you know, I guess a lot of that was ego and, because I thought, you know, UCLA, Stanford, and then Perry Middle School, home of the Huskies. It just didn't quite have the same ring. Um, but I'll tell you, when I'm in the classroom, I don't want to be anywhere else. I'm not waiting for my real life to start. I feel comfortable and usefully whole, at least once a day. Um, that also meant I had to have more school. <laughs> Please, not more school. Um, but I had to get a teaching credential, and, and which I've, I've done that. Um, so that GED exam turned into the bachelor's degree and the master's degree and the teaching credential. And that's, you know, that's, that's my story. And, and, uh, but it's, but there's, you know, there's been a lot of trudging. I mean, I got sober in 1985. I, it wasn't until 97 that I finished school. And there's just been a lot of that, you know, plodding along. Um, I certainly would not have missed it. Working with those students, you know, as I talked about the, all the, the pregnancies I terminated and thinking I could have no way to ever make that right. And, you know, I, I could have missed that experience working with, I mean, these are truly unwanted children, very, very unwanted children. And, and I have the opportunity to work with the kids that nobody wants. The system doesn't want them. The parents don't want them. The, no, the teachers don't want them in their classrooms. And so that was a way for me to kind of get some peace with that, which I, you know, would, would have missed, had, you know, had I not listen to my sponsor and I remember saying to her Marin how did you know that you know how did you know that that was the, the right thing and she said I I didn't know I just I, I just knew I didn't mean you any harm and I just something seems to happen with sponsorship where 
you know, if, if I'm willing to surrender my ideas, and, and she always tells me, you know, you don't know where your answers come from. And that I found that to be true. If I'm just willing to kind of surrender and someone else is willing to be of service and help me out, God seems to, to come into that place. Um, m- my life is, is, is very, very good. Um, and uh, I think I'm finished. Again, if you're new, I want to welcome you. Um, I hope you stay. And Sandy, uh, I also, the, the quote that Sandy read, I love that too. And, and I'll, there's, it's kind of redone a little bit in the big book. I mean, in the, as Bill sees it. And I'll just take the, the short version because um, I think it bears repeating. And that is that outsiders are sometimes shocked when we burst into merriment over a seemingly tragic event over, out of the past. But we have recovered and are helping others to recover. And what greater cause could there be for rejoicing than this? Thank you so much. Thank you for my life.